Hey everyone, and welcome to our Motos and Friends podcast, brought to you by the editors at Ultimate Motorcycling. I'm Arthur Coldwells. This week we feature two premium quality, flagship level motorcycles. We're coming into launch season right now, where the manufacturers allow us to try out their latest and greatest machines for the coming year. Senior editor Nick DeSena has just returned from a couple of weeks in southern Spain, where he was able to ride two exceptional motorcycles. The first was the 2022 Triumph Speed Triple 1200RR. That's the one with the gorgeous cafe racer styling, and he rode it on both road and on track. Shortly after that, he then made his way to the Circuito Jerez Angel Nieto, where he spent an incredible day riding Ducati's jaw-dropping new superbike, the Panigale V4S. I think you'll be fascinated to hear his insight into both of these machines. I really hope you enjoy this episode. There he is, looking a little jet-lagged, but otherwise in good condition. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so... So whereabouts did you get to ride the Speed Triple? And, and which model was it? So we rode the 2022 Triumph Speed Triple 1200RR, which is a, we'll say a derivative of the 1200RS that we rode um, earlier in the year. So it's gone from naked bike to somewhat super sporty, you know, old school super bike sort of deal. Um, so it has a bikini fairing and a single headlight and clip-ons and a revised riding position, but those are pretty much the changes. And as far as where we rode it, well, we went to Ronda, Spain, which is an old kind of castle town um, in Andalusia. And we checked out the roads in that area, which were phenomenal. And then we went to the Ascari Race Resort to spin a few laps. Yep. I've done a few laps on that myself. Um, crashed in turn one, I hate to say, but um, I've also done that. <laughs> so um, it's, a, yeah, it's a great place. Spectacular, spectacular track once you start to, to figure out the layout. Yeah, highly technical circuit. Um, you know, it's one of those racetracks that uh, really emphasizes time you know, because of the, the layout, it's sort of technical nature, a lot of hairpins, a lot of blinds, um, sections, elevation changes and things like that. Uh, it makes for an absolutely phenomenal circuit, but uh, you definitely need to have your wits about you, you um, in a couple places, especially because uh, there are some sections where the walls are, well, directly on the edge of the tarmac. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> that's always cool. Yes, I um, like a lot of lot of tracks. It has different layouts to it, um, but it um, in in one configuration, in the sort of full configuration, it's something like a four mile lap. Yeah, yeah, it's a long lap, and that's that's what we rode the perimeter configuration. So you get a bit of everything. You know, that said, with the caliber of circuit that we were at and the type of bike we were riding, which isn't really aimed or nor was it designed to be a true super bike. You know, it was a great sort of just track day sort of track. So you were out there to have fun and just enjoy the atmosphere and the greenery and trees that typically do not uh, dot the landscape of Southern California racetracks. And it sort of fit the whole motif of this sort of gentleman's sport bike that we were riding. Right, right. 
So what are the, what's the sort of the principle? I mean, we've talked about cosmetic, but what are the principal differences between this and, and the new speed triple that you rode recently? So, I mean, I, I actually hit on, you know, 90% of them, which is kind of interesting, <laughs> okay. but really it's, it's more of um, just a styling update and then an ergonomic update. So you do have clip-ons, you're kicked forward a little bit. The, um, the foot pegs are, are raised up and put back a little bit. So you have a little bit more leverage uh, when you're cranked over and just in that more sort of super sport slash super bike uh, riding position. But the, the crucial thing that Triumph engineers are really aiming at with this is just creating a, a you know, a, a super bike adjacent experience and looking at it from a road rider's perspective. So instead of taking a, a super naked or, um, you know, a, a super sport or something like that, and then converting it to a road bike, which has, you know, an inherent sort of flaw, whereas, you know, super bikes are truly racetrack uh, focused and then trying to make it road oriented. They started with a road oriented naked bike and then made it a little bit sportier and just by updating the riding position. And those are the key differences. Um, the other mechanical difference that you'll have between the naked RS and the sportier RR is uh, Olin's semi-active suspension. And that also kind of explains the, the price delta between the two. Um, so this gets kicked up to um, fairly lofty, you know, uh, um, if I'm remembering the MSRP correctly, uh, uh, $20,950. So it's up there. But uh, then again, looking at it, it is sort of the dress to the nines uh, sport bike. But um, sure, that's quite a significant difference, though. I mean, you know, the sort of electronic Olin suspension—that is, that's a that's a big thing. It is. It is, and and it falls in line with the price delta between a a bike that that has it and a bike that doesn't. So whether we're talking about, um, you know, a good example would be the RSV4, um, the standard model, and then the factory. And the price difference between the two is similar to what we're seeing here uh, between the naked bike and the RR that we got here. But really, it, those changes do fundamentally change the experience, the riding experience, we'll say. You still have that brand new 1160cc um, triple cylinder engine, which you know is pumping out roughly 177 horsepower, 92 foot-pounds of torque. Wow. And if we go back to the superbike class of, say, the mid 2000s, maybe even the mid to late 2000s, 177 horsepower was about what those bikes were making not so long ago. So, in terms of power, yep. no one's going to have any issue. And if they do, well, I'm sorry. I had an 07 Jixa 1000, and that put out 176. Yeah. On, on the jet tuning dyno. So, yeah, and that was no slouch. Yeah. So yeah, it's that's that's respectable, very respectable horsepower. Oh yeah, and the the sort of crucial thing with this engine is what it, we experienced on the RS when we first tested it is you know it just has a very broad mid range, plenty of low end grunt, and the the sort of crucial thing to understand about this motor is how it feeds in that power. So it does have a lot of low end torque, and it's a little bit deceptive in the sense that that the fueling and everything about it is just so accommodating. And then you rush into this huge mid-range that you can do whatever you want with. And then for the racetrack, you still have plenty of top ends to really uh, run the bike out. 
and a lot of that's brought on because you know it's a quite revy triple cylinder engine so it still has that character but you have a lot of power that you can use on the street and so it is a lot more i would say um effective as a street bike than most super bikes of today which are you know really aimed at the racetrack and in a lot of ways very peaky um you know because you really need to push them to extract their true potential and you just can't do that on, on the street is it a really significant difference in the engine between this and the previous um speed triple yeah if we go back to the 1050 speed triple uh which was around for quite a long time i would right. say that the character differences are pretty enormous um this engine is smoother it one it just makes more power in the mid-range and up top and it's just a far better built engine you know the 1050 was on the market for a good number of years and yeah. they got a lot of work out of it or a, you know a lot of um, play out of that engine but uh, this is an extra step up and to me with the you know finger follower valve train lower inertia um uh, components and things like that the way it just spins up is just so lovely so tractable and really you know kind of defines that sweet spot for triple cylinder engines and triumph triumph's kind of leading the way with that i mean the brand is almost synonymous with triple cylinders when you talk about a modern sport bike so i feel like they kind of own that space with the mt09 in a in a very close second but they do a triple pretty good yeah they, yeah they they uh, they really do um so with the, the sort of the changed ergonomics that must affect the handling a fair bit i mean you're changing the weight distribution quite a lot yeah is it i mean firstly how does it affect the handling and secondly how committed is it i mean is it really far forward and 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 pretty super sport committed or, or is it a, a comfortable cafe racer you know, you can phrase it as a comfortable cafe racer. There is no doubt that with this more committed riding position, you do get a little bit more wristy sure. when you're at lower speeds. So say if you're trundling around town or um, stuck in traffic, something like that, it's definitely going to be a lot more, um, you know, taxing on your wrists. The benefit to this more aggressive riding position is that when you're actually in a scenario where you can utilize it, you are putting a little bit more weight over the front end. So you do get more feedback from the front. You can steer it with a little bit more urgency than you would the naked bike. And it just feels that extra step more pointed in every capacity. And really that's because you're, you're sort of changing the weight bias. Yeah. That's kind of what I was getting at. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. And when we we're, when we we're talking to the engineers, one of the questions that kept coming up is, oh, is the weight bias changed? The weight bias changed. Like, no, it's still 5150, um, just like the RS. However, because you are now adding however much weight over the front end, and that's going to change from rider to rider. Um, right. You know, you're you're really just making it steer a little bit faster and do everything just that that extra step. Now it's not quite as demanding as a super sport, but I would say it's edging in that direction if we had to look at things on a broad scale it, it is nowhere near as committed but you are still going to feel a little bit of that wristiness when you're um when you're at low speeds and you can get around it by uh, you know just riding faster so there's that <laughs> <laughs> did you ride the the rs version on track i think you did didn't you correct yeah so is there any sort of real difference in the track experience on them 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, just the way that it, it drops into corners and how you can manipulate the bike, this just gives you that that sort of extra sense of uh, control. Okay. In my opinion, you know, with a naked bike, you are a little bit more disconnected from the front end because you're sat up. Sure. And then on top of that, you also have wind drag that plays into it. So you're kind of always doing like a, a lat row, you know, <laughs> grabbing onto the handlebars, especially at high speed. And this, this small fairing, even though it's not a full fairing, it's just kind of a bikini fairing. It is really effective. So you do get a lot of wind protection, even though looking at photos, you might not think it would be all that great. It's, it's quite effective. Okay. Interesting. So the electronic suspension, uh, the RS did not have the electronic suspension, correct? Correct. It uses standard mechanical suspension. That's sort of the, the kind of the, the premium upshot with the RRs. You get the latest and greatest uh, Olin Smart EC 2.0 uh, semi-active suspension. So that means it, it adjusts your damping rates as you're riding. Um, you know, this is a, a product that we've covered in numerous iterations. It's on the Yamaha R1M, Ducati Panigale V4S, um, you know, others, other top tier super bikes and, uh, you know, other sport bikes. I first rode it on the CBR1000RR at Portimao a couple of years ago when they first came out with it. And it was really interesting. The thing I liked about it was they've, they changed going from clicks and talking about, you know, damping and rebound and, and that. They simply separated a corner into into three parts, sort of entry, mid corner and exit and said, um, you know, here's something you can dial in. So it's much more of a plain English kind of settings on it. Yeah. Um, and obviously now we're on to the second generation, so it's got to be even better. But yeah. it was noticeably it, it was noticeably different and changing the settings were were really interesting because um, I found on the on the thousand RR when, basically what what they had us do was they said look you know don't just go around and do a bunch of laps do go out do like three or four laps and then come in and make a change and then go out and do three or four laps and come in and just sort of feel what the, how the suspension's changing um, so I came in and, and actually Freddie Spencer was was one of the guys and as I came into the pits Freddie came up to me and said, you know, how's the bike feeling? I said, it's freaking awesome. It feels great. I got absolutely no complaints at all. I mean, maybe if I was really getting pedantic, I'd say that there was a little bit of chatter when I first applied the brakes at the end of the straight. There was a little bit of chatter coming in, but it's absolutely minimal. He said, oh, he said, let's see what we can do about that. And he kind of called up the menu and it was made a, a really simple change. I, I forget exactly what it was he did. Super simple, super easy for the man in the street to do and to understand. I went out and the freaking chatter was gone. I couldn't believe it. I yeah. mean, it was really, it wasn't like the old days of, well, you know, your rebound is too fast or, you know, you're, whatever. You didn't have to go through all of that stuff. It was, it's man in the street type of, you know, understanding. That was really impressive. So I can only imagine that that the 2.0 is is incredible. Yeah, and it you know even though it's called the Smart EC 2.0, um, that's really just talking about the current generation of the ECU. We always have to remember when talking about this product that it's set up and the algorithm changes depending on the bike. You know, obviously Olin's works with that particular manufacturer and to really get the most out of their product for that 
for a specific application. What you described is the objective-based tuning interface. So it breaks things down into like front stiffness, braking support, corner support, um, acceleration support, things like that. So instead of looking at looking at it from a, a more conventional point of view where you just have uh, rebound damping, compression damping, and preload, it breaks everything down into an event-based scenario. And, and for someone that's maybe not as well-versed in suspension dynamics or chassis dynamics, it's a lot easier for someone to just go into the dash, click a few buttons, try a setting, go, yeah, I liked that, or I didn't like that, and then find a setting that they like really quickly. And for my case, especially on press trips, you know, we can go into the dash and fix things to our liking within a couple, a couple laps and then get to a good enough sort of chassis setup, which helps a ton because we have limited time on the racetrack and we need to get to a, a, a good point quick. So on that note, you know, they, they also break things down or Triumph does specifically in its user interface where you have three general semi-active modes of comfort, normal, and dynamic. Now you also have the fixed modes that turn it into essentially electronically adjusted fixed damping rates. So it's not adjusting the whole time, but I stuck with the, the dynamic stuff and comfort is as you'd expect. It's sort of plushy, very Cadillac-y, um, normal firms things up a little bit. And then dynamic is exclusive to the, the track settings. And, um, you know, I, I kind of fiddled with things here and there and really didn't stray too far from the default settings with a dynamic normal mode, um, which I think do an excellent job on the street and uh, on the racetrack setting for this bike. I think it does a really good job as well. And really for me, electronic suspension shines in a street scenario because right when I first rode the RS, I just kept thinking like, man, you know, this is a, a really heavy duty sort of super naked it's stiff it feels sporty it's kind of worried about how it translate on the street well in this case with the electronic suspension that doesn't matter because even though the chassis is stiff it is very capable at the racetrack right all those woes of you know being too stiff and damp too firm doesn't matter it just gobbles up everything without any concern and also keeps the bike very balanced and poised as well right. so those are the crucial takeaways for me with the electronic suspension on this bike. Sure. Okay. If, if somebody was in the market for this bike, what other sort of competitors would we be looking at? I mean, what, what's, what's a similar kind of machine? You know, that's, that's a, a really good question. One that <laughs> is a lot more convoluted than you might think, because if we look at it from price, well, there's nothing really up there. In terms of price point, what does come to mind is something like the Kawasaki Z900 um, RS Cafe. Okay. In terms of styling and positioning, I would say it's in that realm. Now, the RS Cafe is nowhere near as sophisticated and not even in within earshot of this thing's price. Right. But if we look at it stylistically, its purpose, it's, it's in there, however... The other caveat to that statement is the cafe having ridden that bike is not even on the same level in terms of outright performance yeah. that this bike is. It is as much as the RS in terms of performance and then some. Right. So okay. really it, it is an, it, they've sort of created a class of their own. Kind of. Yeah. Hence my question. I was kind of, I'm sort of struggling to think, I mean, may, maybe like, um, 
the Ducati Panigale. I mean, not the not the V4. Um, something like that. Maybe maybe the Ducati Supersport. Um, maybe yeah. The the Supersport might fit, but okay. you know, again, because of the aesthetics, I, I would kind of go back to this thing being a, a bit of an outlier. And you know, frankly, and I'm I'm okay with that. You know, sometimes a brand has to do their own thing, and uh, the rest of the market follows them, or they don't, or they just keep putting out a model that they are the sole provider of. And, you know, it's sort of the same thing with like the Thruxton RS or uh, sorry, not RS, the Thruxton R, which is the most extreme version of the Triumph Thruxton. There are some cafe racers on the market, nothing like that. Nothing up to that, that fit and finish, which Triumph is just absolutely amazing at um, the performance of that bike and uh, really just the, the competency of the, the components that are, that are on that machine in the same way that, that this is. So there are, there are bikes in the realm, but just nothing's at this thing's level. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I mean, Triumph have really sort of maneuvered themselves into a, a premium brand type of positioning. Absolutely. You know, kind of running with that whole gentleman's sport bike theme that, that I brought up earlier. And it's just, it's sort of the tagline that we all kind of thought of when we were boots on the ground in Spain. It's, you know, the way it handles as well, it's not as aggressive as a true super sport or super bike, but it, it just has that very typical balanced chassis that, that I know Triumph for, and I've come to know Triumph for in the past, maybe six years or so, where it may not be the fastest handling machine, but it's incredibly stable, very user-friendly and allows you to just tip in with confidence and that's something that that really shines through in this bike is, you know, you can go to the racetrack and tear up tires and have fun, but it is a very user-friendly machine and really embodies that sort of, uh, you know, <laughs> Mr. Jeeves around the racetrack and, and street sort of, sort of personality. It just does it and isn't going to put up a fight. It's not going to get out of shape because really 170 horsepower is a lot, but it's not going to tie itself into knots the right. way that, you know, a proper super bike does. Um, and then with that, you have, you know, IMU supported electronics. Again, it's the same, same scenario as the RS where everything is sort of boiled down into four general modes, track, sport, road, and rain. Um, you know, some users might be disappointed that it, you don't have the, the same level of, of adjustability as a super sport or super bike, but it goes back to the, well, this is a super sport for the road. So they're trying to make it as user-friendly and set it and forget it as possible. So I see both sides of the argument, but you know, that said, the electronics are quite good. And um, we rode a Scari and I would say not ideal conditions. It was drying the whole time, low fifties in terms of temperature. Right. So we rode the racetrack in, in mixed conditions. A lot of the time you're, you're taking lines that sort of uh, <laughs> dodged puddles and wet spots in, cer in certain circumstances, but, <laughs> right. you know, prevented you from spinning up. Uh, I definitely went through a few corners and uh, kind of forgot that a, a patch was there and was like, eh, and just kind of <laughs> made it happen. But, um, you know, still had a blast and with, you know, having a, a drying and a scary circuit, you can really test sort of the grip levels, which you have immense amounts of grip, thanks to uh, you know Pirelli uh, Diablo Supercorsa uh, SP tires, wow. and um, you know it's just 
just a very good package in terms of its electronics and, and rider aids and things like that. Okay. How about um, in terms of electronics, I assume it has a quick shifter. Yeah. So you do get an up-down quick shifter, you okay. know, the throttle maps that I all mentioned, you know, the only thing that I really kind of picked up on as far as a, a complaint was at maybe mid RPM and it, it only happened in specific RPMs. Um, you could just introduce a little bit of a sort of a snatchiness in the initial on-off of the throttle. Um, was that and that was something that I was that mostly noticed on the racetrack. Was which that restricted is to any mode? Or? It was, it, I rode in the, the track mode, which shares a throttle map with Sport. So it doesn't have a dedicated track map. So I, I would say this was down to the, the Sport throttle okay. specifically. In the other modes, it didn't really do it. Okay. But... Um, yeah, that was about the only thing. And it's not a true, you know, true snatchiness of the throttle. Like when you think about the early, early Yamaha R1 uh, from 2015, when they did the, the, the initial redesign of their superbike, that sticks out in my mind as a, as a bike that in the United States suffered from a pretty egregious uh, throttle snatch. Uh, that's not so much of a problem now, but back then it, it, was, it was pretty bad. Yeah, the Suzuki GSX-S 1000S, the upright naked jigsaw was... Oh, yeah, that one too. You know, that, oh, that, that was another one. Um, yeah. You know, so yeah, I mean, it, everybody's pretty much got a handle on that now. Yeah, I mean, the, the brands that have worked it out are working it out kind of in spades, and the ones that have struggled are... Is that an emissions thing? I think it is, isn't it? I, I, I've had different Japanese manufacturers uh, for the U.S. market bikes specifically really cite... Um, emissions as the culprit um because when you when you look at it having ridden multiple bikes that are tuned and that are reflashed completely that issue isn't there so it really comes down to um some sort of throttle mapping in relation to uh, emissions goals uh, in my opinion right um in terms of for the rest of the bike in terms of braking I assume this has got sort of, you know, top, top shelf Brembo components and yeah, same as the RS. So you have Brembo style on the calipers. Um, and then the sort of the really trick thing that, that triumph has been adding to a lot of its, its bikes recently, or it's modern, modern sport bikes is the Brembo MCS master cylinder. So it has an adjustable span and ratio, which means you can change the brake feel just at the, sort of turn of a knob that's sim typically something you can't do unless you change the entire component right sure um and that's that's always stood out to me as a really cool feature that's on the street triple the speed triple yeah I, no i like that that's yeah that is awesome yeah so brake feel for me i thought was quite good um you know what i would expect as out of brembo silemas and you know the power is just it's there uh you have more than you know what to do with and you can, you know, soften it up or firm it up as you like. Um, I will say in those softer settings, I wasn't a huge fan of that at all. I remember I jumped on one bike and the rider before me took it to the lowest setting and it, they just felt, uh, yeah, it was just too soft for me. It just wasn't aggressive enough. And then when I bumped it up like midway through the lap, which I don't recommend people doing, by the way, <laughs> you're just not focused because that's your right hand, so right. just don't do it. But um, yeah, and then I just firmed him up, and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, this is way, this is way better. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the problems for this bike are 
in my opinion, pretty nil. I mean, yeah, that that one throttle map could just have that that you know teensiest bit of refinement smoothing on the initial on off, and then you know you do have to put up with a, a little bit more risky riding position, but you get all of the RS in terms of stability, handling, uh, engine performance, and then really the comfort level and sort of grip is kicked up a notch with the electronic suspension. And then of course you are going to look like the coolest person on bike night because I don't care what anyone says, this thing looks amazing in person. Really? The colorway that we rode is the red hopper and storm gray that will set you back an additional 350 bucks, but I don't care. Look good, feel good. That is <laughs> worth good. it. <laughs> that thing, I mean, it's just, it looks killer. There's no other way to put it. I'm sorry. And as you say, fit and finish, Triumph do an amazing job. Um, so in terms of comfort, it, you've said it's a bit risky, but is there any sort of adjustment in the handlebars? I mean, are they handlebars that, that come across like old cafe racer style or are they actual clip-ons? They're actual clip-ons. So okay. you could probably adjust them for, you know, in and out to make it wider or, you know, right. tighter, but uh, height, not so much. Um, you know, I, I would say if they could have gone with a riser clip-on and I would alleviate some of that, but you're buying into this whole thing's motif when you get it. So I'm of two minds about it. The aftermarket will probably take care of it anyway. I mean, I used to run uh, Healy Sport Track bars on my Jixxer. Yeah. Um, which just, it only raises them up about half an inch or something, but it actually does make a difference. Yeah, and that can be enough. Yeah, it, it is. It is. What was What's the, uh, the stretch across the tank like? Because for me, it's less about the height of the bars and more about how far you have to stretch forward. So if, if you're not having to stretch too far, it doesn't really matter if the bars are down a little bit. No, it's not really raking you forward. I mean, I think the most egregious offenders of that, uh, when I think about bikes that I've ridden are like the, uh, the original Ducati Sport Classic. It's not around anymore, yeah. but that one was long and low. And then the B BMW R9 T racer was just, ugh. Yeah. Yeah, it is nowhere near those bikes. So if those are your reference points, <laughs> you're okay. This thing is comfortable. All right. Okay. All right. Well, that's that's awesome. So it sounds like it really sounds like an absolutely fantastic bike with the only possible, you know, slight downside that you've got to find 20k to, to stick it in your garage. Exactly. You know, it's with with this style of bike, you're really you're buying into the whole essence of it the experience of it like yes it is a little bit more risky than the naked bike and no it's not a true blue super bike but who cares it was never trying to be anyway this is a sport bike right. for the road and that was their intentions and i think they achieved their goals and the thing is you get an absolutely just bonkers engine and <laughs> great chassis good electronics and it keeps everything simple and sort of that that tried and true you know user-friendly triumph ethos but uh, at the end of the day, I was impressed. Awesome. Well, while we're on the subject of riding on track, um, you got to go to uh, Jerez in Spain and you got to um, uncork your hooligan um, on the, what was it? The Ducati Panigale V4S? Yes. So we were in 
Circuito de Jerez, Angel Nieto, <laughs> excuse the horrendous accent, riding the 2022 Ducati Penigali V4S. Um, this year they did a number of updates. So they essentially tweaked almost every aspect of the motorcycle in some capacity. And the entire goal per the original PR statement was to make an easier superbike. And that's that's a bit of a no misnomer when you think about what a superbike is, which is something that accelerates like the Dickens, you know, stops with just absolute brutal forces and, you know, has top speed that'll peel the paints off of every, you know, barrier that you rip past. But um, the goal is to, well, make that bike easier to ride. And if you take nothing else from this podcast, then yes, they have achieved that goal. Actually, I do, I do get that because when you consider that this platform is the basis for the world superbike campaign of their race machine, I mean, it's, <clears throat> this is actually very close to their race machine. Um, but the, 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 the challenge that Ducati have had in pure race terms in the last, well, ever since the V4 came out is the window in which it works well to find the right setup is actually a pretty narrow window. And so Ducati have suffered from a lack of consistency at the different tracks that the other manufacturers have had less of a problem with. So you typically with the other manufacturers, you know, the Yamahas and the Kawasaki's, they tend to, at every track, they make a few small tweaks to the, to the base setting and it really doesn't matter where they're at, the bike will always work very well. Ducati haven't, haven't had that luxury. And if you look at the way riders of the caliber of, of Scott Redding have won and, and dominated at some tracks or been highly competitive at some tracks and other tracks, they're struggling like hell. And Chaz Davis has, has struggled with it from day one, from when the, the V4 first came out a few years ago. So I can definitely see that as an overall goal for the bike, Ducati are uh, essentially wanting to make this bike e easier to set up and to work better across the board rather than make it so narrowly focused. Yeah, I mean, since the, the V4 was introduced roughly four years ago, kind of going on five, if you kind of fudge the numbers a little bit, um, the bike has been updated almost every year except 19 and every update was to kind of smooth it out make it a little bit more approachable right whether that was by adapting the v4r front frame right. which gave a little bit more feel updating electronics updating the traction control strategies and, and torque strategies things like that it's it's every every step of this this bike and you know we have to remember that the Panigale v4 is a pretty young platform for the brand right uh, you know, every step has been to make it more rideable. Now, this year, um, you know, they changed uh, chassis geometry, improved the gearbox ratios, um, did a whole deep dive on the suspension. And the sort of the big one for me was the rider ergonomics and gave you a lot more braking support and just ability to to ride the bike for longer periods of time. And so that was the claim right out of the box. And for me with, with Ducati's in their sort of narrow nature, 
um, this dates back to, you know, even 916 before my time, you know, the, the bikes have always, always really strived to be thin, agile, you know, motorcycles. Well, the, the sort of the downside to having a very thin bike is that you have to use a lot more core strength to grip the fuel tank. Whereas if you think about Japanese equivalents with more bulbous shapes, it's a little bit easier to kind of grip the tank and hang off. So they've addressed that issue right up, right off the top. And that's essentially the first thing that I noticed when jumping on the 2022 is, um, you know, from the first lap, suddenly the fuel tank has a much more flat and vertical uh, side profile. So you can really get your knee into it when you're hanging off the side of the bike. And then it has just a, a, an improved shape on the rear end. And when you're in hard braking zones, I was able to just jam my thigh into the back of the tank and prop myself up uh, much more effectively. And then the third component of that is that the seat itself is much flatter and also has a kind of rubberized texture towards the rear. And the overall texture is just much more grippy. So you have something that holds you a little bit better in place, you're able to brace against the fuel tank now, which is something that I couldn't say about the previous V4S um, sure. or the, the Panigale V2, which still had that very rounded profile, quite low. Right. Um, and that is a huge, huge thing. I know it's kind of silly to talk about a fuel tank in that. No, no, no. That actually makes that actually totally makes sense. In fact, this is this is probably a legacy that dates back to Jorge Lorenzo racing the Ducati in MotoGP. Yeah. Um, if you remember, that's exactly what they had to do in mid-season. They had to add various bits to the tank and muck around with the seat just so that because he was coming off a Yamaha in line four um, and going to a narrow V4. Yeah, you know, a narrower V4. And or narrower, yeah. That's something that he struggled with. And and truth be told, it's it's an issue that every rider struggles with every motorcycle when you're talking about dialing in ergonomics for you because right you know i'm five foot ten inches and the next guy could be talking about is scott redding's height and he's a very leggy individual and he has different requirements but with the ergonomics the ergonomic changes here that kind of blew me away almost immediately really it was that it made that much of a difference oh absolutely i mean let's just be like totally dead honest this is a super bike (laughs) through through a, a just it is still a superbike, but the claim that is it easier to ride? Yes, and is it easier to ride for the average person? So whether your name is Nick DeSena, random track day guy, or Chaz Davies, um, or you know Michael Rubin Rinaldi, right? If they're all to ride that, I think they'd all agree that compared to the previous iteration, it it's easier to ride. Now, fun fact: at the racetrack, we had. Johan Zarco and Jorge Martin spinning laps with us. And uh, if you really want to see what that bike can do, we'll just put it in their more than capable hands. Right. I think Jorge Martin was lapping within four seconds of his MotoGP lap time, I believe. Yeah, and Zarco was right at his heels. I mean, they were tenths or hundredths, something like that, that off from each other. And watching those guys ride this bike was insane there is no other way to describe it it is absolutely insane wow um i got passed by <laughs> by Ori martin into the cedo ponds corner and uh yeah he was dragging his elbow and he threw me a thumbs up 
It's <laughs> <laughs> when I realized he is much better at riding motorcycles than me. It was something that I'd already accepted long before ever being in his proximity, but yes. Yeah, so anyway, he is a MotoGP rider that has more skill in his left foot than I do in my entire body, body or career. It's actually very shocking when that happens. Oh, yeah. It is, and I've had, and I've had years of doing it. Like, as, uh, going back to the Honda 1000RR at Portimao a couple of years ago, um, I'm riding around with, with Freddie Spencer, and I'm, I'm doing some lap times with him, and it's all good, and, and I'm cranking around thinking, whoa, I'm riding with, you know, Freddie Spencer. And then at some point, he just kind of turns around, gives me a cheery wave, and then just kind of fucks off. <laughs> I was like, oh, all right. <laughs> I thought I was a bit faster than that, but I guess not. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's, the, that's a, retired, a retired pro that's been retired for a while. This is a hungry, yeah. actual, in the thick of it, yes. current-gen MotoGP rider, Jorge Martin, that shamed all of us and had a great attitude by the way i mean yeah zarco and martin were totally amical dudes but um you know let's let's look at these ergonomic changes as sort of the foundation for everything that the 2022 ducati Panigale v4 and v4s are are trying to achieve and um you know the other changes uh, there's a couple little little things going on with the 1103 cc engine so that is a difference from the engine that's found in the v4r which is designed to be in World Superbike. So it is a 1,000cc uh, engine. It is a, a different engine overall. This is the road-going engine, we'll say. And in the European market, it makes you know, roughly 215 horsepower, 91 foot-pounds of torque. And that is a silly amount of power. You used every single one of those, I'm sure, or every single one of those horses. You really explored the outer edge of that envelope, I would imagine. <laughs> oh no well, i'm sure they did but i didn't but uh no it's uh the the thing that's crazy is is how good the throttle mapping and electronics work so when i talk about the engine i have to talk about the electronics simultaneously because they're they are intimately connected right. you know we started our day on full-blown wets uh, i've never ridden on a racetrack in the wet and it rained and that's what we had to face in the, the start of the day Ooh. so you know, we put it in the, the revised low power mode, which cuts everything to 150 horsepower, same as the Panigale V2. And just the, the way the throttle feeds in the power, it is perfect. And then you have the traction control systems and slide control systems that keep propelling you forward. You can feel them just sort of reeling power back and just keeping everything in check. But the way you crest over you know, turn is it one, two, three, four, five, six, right? Long right hander and cresting over that hill, right? Before that back straight, the way it's allowing the power to get to the ground that is just unbelievable. And you know, as someone that's never ridden in the wet, that was one of those sort of confidence inspiring to use a, a buzzword in the motorcycle industry experiences where I couldn't believe one that these wet tires had that much grip, and two that these electronics allowed me to accelerate in such a manner. And that just goes to the testament of how they're, they're allowing, you know, the, the torque to be delivered. So yeah, you have silly amounts of power, but you can use it. And that's the crucial thing. If you think about like rhetoric from the old two stroke days, you know, people would be like, oh, the power is, you know, between X RPM, this RPM and it's super narrow window. 
yeah, that doesn't sound user-friendly. This thing just has broad power all over the place, immense amounts of it, and you can use it. And I'm just a normal rider. So that's the crucial takeaway here. Right. Okay. And then kind of going through the other power modes as well, as the track started drying, as we jumped on slicks, the, um, the updated uh, medium and high power modes, which give you, you know, a properly sporty taste of that engine. They now have uh, something that's derived straight from MotoGP. So they have uh, torque, uh, torque limiting specific to each gear. Before it was coupled between gears, but now it's specific to each gear. And that's the first time for a road bike, you know, overall. So that's crazy. What, what exactly does that mean? So basically it's not giving you the full 91 foot pounds of torque right out of the gate. Um, it's not old school analog, just, you know, whatever you twist at the wrist is what's going to happen. What it's doing is it's curbing power in a manner to actually make it more user-friendly accessible and allow you to put power down in a, um, you know, in a more effective way. So as you're at high lean, you're getting on the gas, you can actually start accelerating. And, you know, if I were to ride the bike with or without those features, I guarantee you I'd be slower without them. Uh, just because of the way it, it makes that power conceivable and, and not as uh, intimidating. And that's sort of the bottom line. Which, which also makes it safer. I mean, it's got to, it's, it's got to be safer, of course. It's, yeah, outside of the fact that it's just fundamentally safer. But curbing torque is something that every superbike on the market does these days. And, uh, you know, you'll see some pundits that are like, oh, you know, it shouldn't do that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, no, with this kind of horsepower, you need it. And frankly, in World Superbike and MotoGP, that's what they do. They're not, they're not getting the full zoot um, that you might expect. They're tuning it very, very precisely. Right. But to satisfy those people that really need to get every 215 ponies, <laughs> they offer the full power mode, which outside of first gear, there's no torque limiting. It's just the full send mode. And that is a... Uh, Holy crap. That is a, a fun experience. Now, arguably, I probably went slower because, you know, everything's just happening. You're having to be so much more cautious coming onto the throttle out of each of the corners. You know, even, well, at that point, you just lean on the electronics and let it do its thing. But it changes the, the V4's personality to where it's already a, a raging beast that you can grab the reins on because you have some really sophisticated electronic reins to, to help you deal with it. And... When you put it in the full power mode, it's that extra step. It's not, you know, uncontrollable by any stretch of the imagination. It actually is. The fact is, you're just dealing with a lot more power, and uh, it's on the rider to to sort of mitigate that to a higher degree. That said, it was insanely fun. And and obviously by then by then the track had dried out, and so you were on slicks at that point, were you? Yeah. Yeah, by then, that was the last session of the day. We were on slicks for a number of sessions at that point, so three sessions on slicks. And, um, you know, I had become a little bit more, more confident in what was going on underneath me. But, but yeah, I mean, that's a testament to the, the things that we hit on before. It's like, you know, five sessions deep, putting it in full power mode and just going, okay, let's go for it. See how, see how she does. <laughs> With the electronics, you know, I was just blown away by the traction control and slide control because as we went through the day, you know, going from wets to mixed conditions, running wets on 
a dry circuit almost, and then running, you know, full blown uh, slicks, you know, the traction control just lets you get on the gas as aggressively as you dare. And it keeps everything in line. So there's a lot of really fast corners in Hareth where you, you got to really have some cojones to get on it. Right. And uh, oh yeah, the cool thing about, you know, the traction and wheelie control is that they're helping you ride faster and yeah, you can lean on them, et cetera, et cetera. But here, here's the crucial thing that, that I think Ducati did. And this is kind of a game changer for the industry. And I don't mean that in a hyperbolic way. So with the track Evo interface, which is exclusive to track riding, it gives you a huge gear shift indicator, lap time, RPM gauge. And then on your right side, you have all of your electronic settings. So TC, slide control, uh, engine braking, wheelie control. Now, as those systems activate, it'll highlight. So say, you know, I was coming out of um, where I really noticed it is in some of the slower corners, especially in the wet, I'd get on the gas and the TC would light up. I was like, okay, so I'm activating TC here. Now, as the day started drying and we started lowering, you know, the systems, I would get on the gas and be like, okay, um, TC is activating here, wheelie control here. Okay, I can lower it now. Or conversely, I would be going through a corner and being like, oh, I'm giving her all she's got. Ah. And then look at the video and be like, oh, nothing even turned on. No. Okay, so it means uh, I still have a, some more leeway to kind of <laughs> right. let the systems really actually engage. So it gives you a reference point because if you think about motorcycle dashes, and this is, goes to, this, this comment extends to Ducati as well. It's typically only one or two warning lights that tell you some system is activating. Now you don't know which one is doing it, but it's like, oh, TC turned on, or it might be a light that indicates TC and wheelie control simultaneously, but it may have been one or the other or both. You don't know. Now with this system and this interface, you know exactly which, uh, rider aid is cutting in and that to me is just why did we not do this before right. like this is amazing sure it, it again sounds silly to get that amped up over an interface but you know it's derived from the super legera and i am stoked that it's on this bike and i hope it goes to the next generation of the v2 and basically every other motorcycle because it is awesome <laughs> like it's cool you can review video and just understand what you're doing and and if you think that something maybe cutting in a little bit prematurely or, or, you know, you can, you can have an, a, a, an idea now. And before you just had a sort of a, a vague indication that, that the systems were activating, you just didn't know what, and this is way better. Now, the, the one caveat I do have to make about power overall is that in the United States, we're going to get a version that produces 210 horsepower and 91 foot pounds of torque. And that's specifically because of EPA noise emissions compliance. And this is a problem that exists for every single superbike and probably beyond uh, other high-performance motorcycles and cars are subject to this as well. Um, so it, it's really a case-by-case -case scenario. Some manufacturers are dealing with these problems specifically in the United States better than others. Ducati has only taken a few horsepower hit. And to be honest, when you're talking 200 plus horsepower, losing a few, I, I'm not, it's inconsequential in my opinion. Um, but Ducati has a solution and it's 
by Dr. Akropovich. So they have a World Superbike-inspired race-ready titanium exhaust that will bring your bike up to a potent 228 horsepower should you choose to buy 228 <laughs> yeah yeah of course <laughs> holy moly yeah. 228 228 and it saves you 11 pounds and it only goes to uh 105 db with uh, 102 db if you install the baffle so anyway holy you know if you really want to stick it to the man then that's what you're going to have to do and all of this in an easier to ride package yeah now as much as I kind of harp on the ergonomics, making it easier to ride bike, which is true, uh, there's some other really critical things in play. Now, they adopted the World Superbike gear ratios. Um, now, to be clear, it's not the gear ratios from the V4R, which is the bike that's homologated for World Superbike and the one that teams use as a jumping off point to develop their race machines. It's actually from the gearbox that is then, you know, entered in homologation and uh, approved at the beginning of the year. And what they ended up using for the 21 or 2021 race season. So to that end, the first gear, second gear and sixth gears are longer. And in some contexts, you're like, oh, longer gearing can make it a little bit tougher to ride. In the Panigale's case, it's actually sort of calmed it down. So you can, because of the immense horsepower, carry second or third gear in, in a lot of the, the slower corners in Harath and just let the engine be like, and just get out of there. Now, if you really want to try to, to do some good paces and things like that, drop it into first gear. And what, what they've done is um, it's calmed the bike down in those lower gears. So coming onto the front straight, you know, that's first gear, you're getting on the gas letting the electronics kind of sort it out. But even then you have a much longer gear to deal with. So the bike isn't as apt to just start wheeling or just feel too aggressive on that initial crack of throttle. The other thing that's really helped is lengthening first and second has brought the, the gears closer in terms of their ratio and distance. So the transitions from first to second to third are a lot tighter. And it means that as you're upshifting or downshifting aggressively on the brakes, you're not as likely to unsettle the chassis. Like if you think about older super bikes, you're, you're slamming into first gear turns and there's kind of a big ka-chunk. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. That doesn't happen. It's completely smooth, which is crazy to me. And then you have the up-down quick shifter, which is one of the best in the business. I mean, Ducati and Aprilia are head and shoulders above the competition in that regard. Um, there's just no question and six gears longer again to get a little bit more top speed so should you be in six gear fully pinned you can go three mile an hour faster so there's that wow but uh wow you know they're everything they've done like i just keep hammering the point is to make this bike easier to ride so you have this perfect sort of throttle mapping these gear ratios that really help and then um you know moving on to the suspension that's sort of the next big thing okay so uh, what sort of suspension does this have? It obviously has the electronic suspension on it. Correct. You know, it's, it has the, the updated uh, semi-active Olin's NPX 2530 fork, the TTX 36 shock that we've seen on numerous high-end sport bikes like this and the electronic steering damper. Now the critical updates are that it is now a pressurized fork 
and they've extended the travel by 0.2 inches or five mil. And they've also softened the spring rate because now they have a little bit more travel. So that means they can actually soften the spring rate, which makes the front end a little bit more compliant and actually gives more feedback to the rider. Okay. You know, lack of feedback wasn't something that I really struggled with with previous iterations of the V4, but this has taken that, taking it just that extra little kind of nudge forward. And um, of course, you know, it's using the Olin Smart EC 2.0 system. It's on numerous other superbikes, and it has been a fixture uh, on the Ducati. So that means it changes the nomenclature into things like braking support, corner support, front stiffness, et cetera. And you can change everything on the fly from the dash. So you don't need to break out the old toolkit. So right. what I love about the electronic suspension, especially with the new algorithm and suspension settings that they've allowed, is that it just, you know, even in a racetrack setting, the, the semi-active suspension just works incredibly well. So you go into pits, change it up, make it a little bit stiffer. And every time I did that, I got, you know, an appreciably better bike. It was more stable, more planted. My initial um, sort of little setup issue is that I just needed more support out of the shock. That makes sense. Italian testers are hundred and 50, 160 pounds, and you know, much different body types than we Americans. Sure. We're going to need a little bit more in the, in the shock. And, um, you know, every time I just dial it in, got a better bike. And then, you know, going to the fixed modes, which eliminate the semi-active suspension or uh, damping, I should say. Uh, again, just a more just pointed machine every single time. And when you're at a you know, a track day, you don't have much time to really dive into things. Having that system on hand is a bit of a godsend because you can just dial in stuff, find a good setting and just start, you know, picking away at it. And it makes the whole experience more fun because you're not like, okay, I got to turn this and, okay, try this. Okay. That didn't work. You can have, you know, different settings available. So you can just change them on the fly and, that's the big benefit for me. Sure. So um, any other updates on the bike? I mean, uh, or, or is the ergonomics, you know, sort of really the most noticeable thing? No, I mean, the there's another kind of critical thing to mention here as well. So um, it's still using the 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 uh, updated front frame from uh, the, the 2020 model. And um, they've also increased the swing arm pivot point they raise that up about four mil or 0.2 inches if you convert it and that gives greater anti-squat characteristics and also helps the bike just turn when on the gas because you know it's essentially propping up the rear end as you start accelerating more and more and more um you know overall the bike's grip is just huge you get tons of grip in the rear tons of grip on the front when you're trail braking and giving it more anti-squat really helped settle the rear end. So basically it's a more stable Panigale. Again, you know, it's not taking as much out of you to ride it. And you have to look at things from a, well, it's a superbike. It's gonna be hard to ride just as, as, a, as a fundamental inherent quality and characteristic in riding a superbike. They are just, demanding of the rider and everything that you can do to make it easier is going to be beneficial so 
you know, you have aspects like the lightweight uh, forged aluminum Marcosini wheels. You have the counter-rotating crankshaft, which has really allowed the Ducati to become one of the uh, most, I would say, quick handling machines on the market. The thing just snaps into turns, does essentially whatever you want. You kind of just look at an apex and suggest that you want to go in that direction and it steers <laughs> in that direction. Right. And gaining stability is something that the Panigale is needed. And I think these changes have kind of kicked it up into that direction. Um, sure. You know, so it's definitely, definitely helped. Um, you know, and then, then there's some other minor changes like the arrow uh, package is, is a little bit different. Um, the wings are much smaller, but they create the same amount of downforce, 81 uh, pounds of downforce at 186 miles an hour. With less drag, I believe. Yes, with less drag. So it's it's tough to comment on the efficacy without it doing like a, an A-B test between a bike that has and then one that has, that doesn't. But, uh, you know, the faster you go, the, the more stable it gets. So is that arrow, is that chassis? Who's to say? Either way, it looks badass, so I, I kind of don't care. But <laughs> I mean, it has wings. Like, how can you not like that? Right. But, um, you know, the other, other sort of thing that I want to mention is um, the belly pan has much more venting. So that increases airflow across the oil cooler. It promotes heat exchange, which is something that every superbike can benefit from, uh, particularly 200 plus horsepower bikes like the Panigale, which do create a good amount of heat. And the underside of the belly pan also has some venting, again, to promote heat exchange. And there's even a vent for the quick shifter to make sure that it's staying at, at its you know optimal running temp so it doesn't have any issues with um, you know uh, poor performance or overheating or something like that. Because apparently on previous generations, that's something that uh, has come up on particularly hot track days, which I'm really not surprised because you know you heat up the electronics and who knows what can happen. Right. But um, you know, it's just these these little details that that kind of go go above and beyond the call of duty. Right. So this bike sounds like it's going to be stratospherically priced. Oh yes. Oh yes. <laughs> yeah. So you you are looking at a machine that is, you know, into that that 30 grand territory. And if we look at Ducati pricing over its history, it has always been a bit above the rest of the market. That said, this is a premium product. It's playing in a superbike class with the Honda CBR 1000 RRR, um, right. you know, SP that is in that same price point with the R1M that is deep into the 20,000 mark. It's really a you know, we're talking about a, cl a class of motorcycle that is not cheap. And to be fair, they're all extremely technologically advanced and you get what you pay for at, at this level. These are top tier premium items, no holds barred. Right. Um, motorcycles and they are going to set you back a serious amount of coin <laughs> and that's that's just the bottom line yeah well okay um it sounds like it was an awesome day and um i would imagine that the uh, the pointers you gave to zarko and uh and martin maybe might help them next year in their quest for for the moto gp <laughs> crown i hope they appreciated that yeah yeah <laughs> and uh, all right that sounds sounds absolutely awesome no it's it's a uh, you know I, I think ducati has done a really good job just to, if you look at ducati superbikes overall they've really sort of captured that 
lightning in a bottle aspect of of riding a superbike and sort of made it a special experience. And the Panigale V4S in its current iteration really exemplifies that for me in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, maybe the tips I gave Zarco and Martin will help them out, but uh, the reality <laughs> is they actually gave me tips. So they are super cool dudes. Really? That's awesome. Yeah. And it was, it was a solid experience, you know, no major complaints on my end. You know, maybe that fuel tank could just be a hair, hair wider, but um, <laughs> you know, I think the, the fuel fuel tank redesign solves a, a, a longstanding sort of issue for a lot of Ducatis. But yeah, that's about it. Other than that, great experience. We tested the bike through and through, wet, mixed, dry. It was pretty crazy for this Californian that uh, does not muck about in the wet. So. <laughs> hey, well, thank you. I really appreciate um, just listening to your various track experiences with both of these bikes. It's been absolutely awesome. Yep. Cool. Thank you.